week, you remember we started, uh, again, our final study uh, in the book of Proverbs and in uh, Proverbs chapter uh, 31. And in laying it all out, we, we now historically, we understand that Solomon, who had a thousand wives, he's looking for one who has the virtue that he's looking for, and he, he goes through all of those women, and he only finds one. Doctrinally, we know that what we're looking at here is the nation of Israel, where in Psalms 135.4, they are called a peculiar treasure. So we know that God looks at them that way. But then inspirationally, and that's where really our interest lies, not that we don't need to know the other two, but inspirationally, obviously it would be any good woman who is a saved woman who has the qualities of Christ in her life. And also with, along with that would be us, the body of Christ, who is Christ's bride, and uh, you know his one and only bride, who the Bible makes it very clear that we are his virtuous woman, uh, designated as a virgin in the Bible. And, you know, in the book of Song of Solomon, we talked about this. You know, Solomon finds that virtuous woman, and he writes the whole book about her. Uh, we talked about it last week in chapter 1, that he's, she's a black pearl, like into a pearl, but she's black. Her price is far above rubies. We talked about the pearl concept in Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. And then he writes about her, and he gives us an incredible picture. Uh, I don't remember, it was several years ago on a Thursday night. It's obviously on the website. We also have a book on it back there. I went through the book of Song of Solomon, verse by verse. We did it on a New Year's Eve, I believe. And I wanted to do that because that probably is the one book that every child of God, once you begin to get the Bible down, you really need to get yourself acquainted with because the book is an incredible book because it does two things. First of all, it shows us how Christ looks at us. And many times we don't understand that. Many times we, we think that uh, Christ is just waiting around the corner to nail us on something that we did wrong. And of course, that's not true. If the book of Song of Sodom shows us in exact incredible detail how Christ looks at us, what he thinks about us, and how he longs to be with us. It's one of the most incredible insights into Christ's mind as he looks at the church. Then the book also turns around and then shows us how we should love him, how we should view him, how we should uh, understand what he, how what he is and what he does. And it's an incredible book. I would say that probably we all have a relationship and fellowship with Christ in some form or some level, but I would be safe in saying that you'll never have that level of relationship that really is meaningful till you understand the book of Song of Sodom and how it portrays both parties in that. And, you know, and as we continue to move through chapter 31, we'll we want to keep before us what this great chapter, many things, but one of the central things that it does for us. And that is it most certainly defines who we really are uh, as Christ's bride. And uh, it shows us exactly who we are. Because we as God's people, we lose sight of that. We really do. We lose sight of a lot of things. And it's books like this in Proverbs chapter 31 as we come through this chapter 
that we really understand the love that God has for us. And at the same time, as we do that, it will completely define for us, based on that love, the work that God has for us that he began in us the day we got saved. And you want to remember, everything that we're going to look at in chapter 31 is going to be built around a verse in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that simply says, he hath begun a good work in us and will perform it another day of Jesus Christ. He has begun a good work in us the day you got saved. Now, most of God's people, we've talked about this the last couple of weeks, most of God's people never realize that work. They never accomplish that work because there's a process that you've got to go through. And what we have been doing as we move through Proverbs 31, and we've only been in a couple of verses past we got the instructions in the first nine, is we, we've seen the importance of defining some things. The first thing we looked at was defining God's will versus God's plan last week and how absolute vital that is. Understanding that, you know, God's plan is what God wants you to do, but God's will is what he wants you to be. And you'll never do what God wants you to really do until you first become everything that God wants you to be. And boy, we, we talked about that. We, we looked then in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, an incredible, incredible, incredible set of verses. The process of uh, once we get saved and he begins that work in our lives for him, <clears throat> there needs to be a perfecting of that work. He doesn't just put you on the job and walk back to the office. No, no, he trains us. He, he gives us the tools that we need. And in all of that, he perfects us. And we saw in Romans chapter 1 and 2 that it says that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And I broke that down for you within a biblical context. The good will be, you know, the day you got saved. The good will be, you know, what uh, the good work that he started in you. The acceptable will be once you move with that and you begin to put those things into your life in the church like we saw with Paul and, uh, and Barnabas and Timothy we begin to see that you become acceptable. And then once you get to that point in your life, then God perfects the will of God in your life through the New Testament local church, which is God's structure. Uh, you know, and, and it perfects us under the work of the ministry, as I showed you last week in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Then we talked about our transforming of our life. This is part of the process. This is what he does through the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. A transforming process begins in our lives. And, uh, you know, it's through the renewing of our minds that he talks about in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. You know, I've told you this many, many times, and it's so true. When you look at the world, the world will do some things for you. And it's not all bad. I mean, some of it you have to have in life to keep your job or to be successful with whatever you do. But the world, the world will conform you. And he says, be not conformed to this world. So the world will try to conform you. The world will try to reform you. It'll try to change who you are. And of course, we saw the great example of that in Daniel chapter 1 with the three Hebrew children and what, how Nebuchadnezzar tried to, had tried to reform them to the way of the Chaldeans. The world will inform you. It'll give you information, and some of the information is, is good stuff. Some of the information is stuff that we need. 
uh, and it's stuff that uh, will help us in our daily work or our daily life or, or whatever. It's not all bad, but the world system will also misinform you. And uh, it's a thing but it, you don't always get the truth of everything. And so where the world will conform you, the world will reform you, the world will inform you or misinform you, but only the Bible can transform you. And it's through a process. And as I showed you last week in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, it's growing up, not unto him, as the verse is sometimes or mostly quoted, but the Bible says growing up into him, into a perfect man of the stature of Christ. And that comes simply down to the transforming process is simply you and I becoming more like Christ every day in what we think and what we do and how we look at things and how we understand things and how we approach life and certainly, most certainly, how we approach uh, the work of God in our life. You know, and one of the great keys last week, if you remember, was found in Matthew chapter 20. And I showed you God's 12-hour workday. You know, uh, all comes around and back to the second coming of Christ. And he sends workmen into his vineyard. And I showed you that doing the work of God has called us to finish. God, as I've said many, many times, and I want to keep all this stuff before you because it, I don't want this chapter to give you one week and then you forget about it and then give you something else. It's all got to go together. So we are going to continually build new, add to what we've already learned, or, or we're just kind of wasting our time here. But I've told you many times how that Christ came to this earth. He was here for 33 years. Only three and a half years of that was a public ministry that he really did the work. And, uh, and then he went back to heaven. And we know now why that is, is because God, when you and I got saved, became Christ, became the image of Christ, born into that image, now we finish that work that God uh, started for us. And I showed you how in Matthew 20 that he sends workers into the vineyard. They go in in the morning, that's 6 a.m. They go in at three, a third hour, the sixth and the ninth hour, and then the eleventh hour, the last workers go in. And I showed you how that that was right around 1830, 1840, somewhere in there. And we, today, 2020, we are at the end of the last shift of workers that went in. There were no more workers put in after that. We are the last ones, and we are the, at the end. And then, you know, we, we saw the number one key ingredient that every child of God should have in their life. And this is where we got into last week, and we began to develop that, and it's the aspect of virtue. And I said last week, most people don't know what virtue is. Most people just think it's good qualities or this or that. They don't really have a, a biblical definition of it. And uh, he starts out by saying that uh, who can find a virtuous woman? And that her price is far above rubies. And we, 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 we talked about what virtue is, the character qualities of Christ. That as you go through this process, as you allow God to transform you, as you begin to perfect yourself, as you prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, then the character qualities of Christ get built in us through the forming of the Holy Spirit of God, bringing those qualities into our lives. And we build inside of us our spiritual strength and stability that we give to the others through ministry. Last week and this week, probably for me anyhow, I can't, 
speak for you, but I think that it, for what it's done for what I want to do for you is define what ministry really is. We do a lot of ministry here. We talk about ministry a lot. I always put ministry as the forefront of what, why we're even here. And last week, we simply and clearly and plainly defined what ministry is. It's simply giving what God has given us that we have built in ourselves to help heal them, uh, other people, and give to them in a time of trouble, whatever they need. And you remember several weeks ago, I, I, I remarked that a real leader is not somebody who uses other people to make himself strong. A lot of guys do that. But that's not really a good leader. A good leader is not somebody who uses other people to make himself strong, but rather someone who gives his strength to other people to make them strong. And that's the key. That's what ministry really is. And that's what leadership in ministry does. Giving what God has given to us to help get them to the place where they need to get past whatever they're getting past. I don't know if you ever noticed this. It's things like this that I see in the Bible Maybe it just comes with being old and, and being in the Bible for a long time. But things will pop out at me that, that, I've always, that I'll just look at it and I'll say to myself, wow, I never saw that before. And it, it, so usually it carries an amazing concept with it. But did you ever notice this? That when Christ was on this earth as the Son of God doing the work of God, two things were prevalent. One, nobody ever stayed dead. And two, nobody ever stayed sick. Every time there was a dead person and he showed up, they came back to life. And anybody who had an infirmity that came into his presence got rid of that infirmity. And I look at that and I think to myself, wow, that's a great concept. In the presence of Christ, nobody ever stayed dead. And in the presence of Christ, nobody ever stayed with the infirmity that they had. They all got healed. And I look at that and I think as, as, as I finish, as we finish as Christ's body, the work that he started, we will do the exact same thing. We will, one, we will continually give life to dead people and two, we'll heal them with, our, with their spiritual infirmities. And how do we do that? The same way he did, through the virtue that he had. And when you put that same virtue in your life and my life, you too will hardly ever find somebody staying dead in your presence that you have the ability to win them to Christ. And I know everybody does not get saved, but you have the ability to give them life from death. You have the ability to heal their spiritual infirmities. And uh, it's, it's an incredible concept. Now, having said that, don't tell that to a charismatic uh, that because that is the New Testament form of healing right there uh, in the church age. You know we've talked about uh, we've talked about this pandemic defining all of us. It 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 really has. But I want to tell you something. If this pandemic has defined anything, it's defined the charismatic churches. I mean, if let me tell you, let me show you how absolutely blindly stupid that people are. You know, I, you see it on the news every night. I don't remember all the names of the churches, the charismatic churches. That's probably a good thing I don't because I would be tempted to say something and I wouldn't want to, you know, embarrass anybody. But the bottom line is this. 
on the news, they tell you that this church, it's a charismatic church now, big one. This church is having drive-up testing where you can drive into their parking lot and the city's going to be there. They're going to test you for the virus. This charismatic church, I mean, is, is setting up for you to go through and get tested. Okay, I got a question. If you really believe what you are preaching about healing, why are you messing with the testing lines and not putting up the healing lines? But nobody, nobody, nobody seems to ask that question. You got 2,000 people to go to that church. They swear by that church. They love that church. They love the pastors. They love everybody that they do. And they believe that people get healed. And you know what? If that is really true and you really believe that and it really worked for you, what are you doing setting up a testing site? Why aren't you get, getting the lines up with everybody? And your own people don't need to use masks. I mean, I, you know, it, 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 it is absolutely how blindly stupid people follow something that they just don't think. They're not in the Bible. They don't know the Bible. They buy into what the person says when they even can't find it in the Bible to begin with, and then when a real issue, I mean, it's fine when you're, you're on TV, you know, and you're, you're in a tent someplace and you can fake it all, but you know what? When a pandemic hits this world and people are dying, millions, and you claim to have the ability to heal, and you don't do it. And I know all the answers. I know. Hey, I know. They'll say, well, you know, a person can't get, get, get healed if they don't have faith. And those people, they wouldn't have enough faith to get healed. Well, let me ask you a question. Jesus healed dead people. How, can a, how, can, how, how much faith can a dead man have? And, of course, again, ludicrous. And uh, it's a thing where this, this time that we're living in will define a lot of things. But it won't change most people. Because most people are so caught up in what they want to believe that they don't care anymore what the Bible says or how ludicrous in a time of crisis when if you had what you claim you had, you'd be the heroes of the world. But you're not. We've got to rely on Trump. Now, today, uh, we're going to look at our next couple of verses here. And I don't know how far we'll get into this. I'm not in any hurry because I told you I'm not going necessarily verse by verse, but concept by concept one at a time. And all of this week by week as we look at it, and I want to build together for you probably the greatest time we've ever spent together as a church, understanding who we need to be with him, why he saved us, what ministry really is, what what are the character qualities that as a Christian we really need to have? Now, this chapter will break itself down around key words. I want you to know that. I just saw that this week. And, you know, it, it, it's going to break itself down around key words. And so I would suggest that you mark these key words as we go through them. And so far, you know, we saw the woman. And she's the wicked woman or a strange woman that will take strength from a king. We saw strong drink. That was, a, that was a key aspect that we want to mark. Then he, the little phrase, open your mouth. And we saw that we are to open our mouth for two things. One, the little guy who can't stand up for himself. And then, of course, the uh, righteous judgments. That when we do help people, that we give them the truth. We saw the key word virtuous or virtue. 
we saw the key word price. We saw the key word rubies. And today, we're going to add four more key words to it. And yet, every one of... Here's the amazing thing. Not only are they key words unlocking the chapter, but every one of these words you could take and do your own study on. That's how incredible it is. Now, here's what, here's what it says here. It says, uh, who can find... Well, I'm going to read the last verse so we can stay together here. Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. Now today, verses 11 and 12, and I'm not sure we're going to get to 12, but I'll read it anyhow. It says, The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her, so that he shall have no need of spoil. As she will do him good and not evil all the days of his life. Chris, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the service this morning? Okay, Chris Piscano, would you stand up too? I, I want to have all my Chris's a chance. I don't want to be, I don't want to be disrespectful. <laughs> two prayers from two Chris's will work just fine. Anybody else named Chris here? We'll get to you in a second. Go ahead, Chris. Now, see, I did that for a reason. Both their names is Chris. But you notice how their prayer was different. See? They're great prayers. Both of them were great. I, I, the wonderful prayers. But my point is, both their names are Chris. Like, the, plan of, the, will of, the will of God is the same for all of us. But their prayer came from their attitude of heart of what they have inside where God gave them different burdens for what he wants them to do. That's the way it works. Two guys with the same name can get up and pray two different things. Both of them are perfect right on the money. They covered all of the bases, but it comes from two different hearts. And everybody's heart in here is different from what God has called you to do. And that's, you know, that's just, that, that's just, that's just the way it works. Now, it starts out saying here, Verse 11, that the heart of her husband does safely trust in her. Now, there's three key words here that we want to look at. And we're going to build this, this verse around these three words. The first word is the word trust. The second word will be the word heart. And the third word will be the word safely. Those are the three we're going to start with. And then we'll get a fourth one here as we get a little bit down farther here. Now, this I'm not going to teach them in the order you find them, but you'll you understand. And this whole chapter, as I said, is built around key words. Now it says, the heart of her husband does safely trust in her. You know, in life, you're going to find this to be true. You probably don't have to live many, many years to figure it out. But uh, you're going to find that there's very few people that you can really trust in life. Uh, you're going to find that by the time you get 60, 70 years old, that maybe 
my favorite phrase is you could count them on the hand of a man who lost three fingers in an industrial accident. There's not a lot of people you can trust. Because trust will be the bond that holds every relationship together. Trust will be the bond that holds this church together. Trust will be the bond that holds our people together. And when as Christians it comes down to our own salvation, uh, the word trust and the word heart is absolutely essential. You know, our heart is the gateway to everything with God. And, you know, it's a thing where, you know, when we got saved, it was with that heart that we trusted what he said. He said in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised thee from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It's the heart. And, you know, Romans fifteen twelve says, In his name shall the Gentiles trust. When we got saved, we trusted in our hearts what he told us about salvation. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, it says that we trust in the living God. In Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25, it says, Whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. And then it says in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the foundation of the world. So the basic concept of trust starts in us at the day we get saved. In our hearts. You didn't get saved if in your heart you didn't simply trust the promises of God. Now, I'm not, and, and yet you know, and this is again, trust. People have a fear they can lose their salvation. That doesn't mean you're not saved. It just means that that trust that you exercised when you got saved, you never developed to the point where it covers the next aspect of our Christian life, and that will be trust after we get saved. And for that, the famous verse that everybody probably has memorized or knows or marked in your Bible, Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. And trust is the key. Trust will be the fundamental key that we have to have to get saved and then we have to develop that trust after we get saved. You see, when we got saved, God gave you just enough faith to be able to trust what he said about salvation. That's why 15 minutes after you get saved, you should never tell somebody, well, God's going to be you, use you to be a missionary. You don't have enough trust for that. But God gave you a measure of faith to trust him in what he's talking to you about salvation. And then as you grow, as you go through the process, that trust develops. It gets deeper. It gets to the place where you can trust him or you should get to the place where you can trust him for just about everything in your life. Now, having said that, let me just say this. If I've learned anything in all my years about myself, myself first, and about God's people, it's most certainly how selfish we all really are. That life will, in most cases, always be about us. From the most simple things in life to the major issues of our day, we struggle to trust God. We refuse to trust God. I've seen many, many people, sometimes they used to come to this church that, you know, that were great people and they were 
you know, they were nice people. But you know what? They no longer come. They no longer care about the things of God. They're back out in the world. They have a pretense of Christianity in their life. If you would ask them, they would tell you. And if you would say, where do you go to church? They'd probably say, Old Path Baptist Church, but they haven't been here for a year and a half. But the real fundamental problem is somewhere along the line they started trusting the things of the world instead of trusting the things of God. And now their whole life is cluttered with things. And there's no room to trust God in it. And I, I, we, all, we all are that way to some degree. And it's a, it's a fight for all of us. I'm not kidding you. I'm not just singling those kind of people out. We all struggle with that. I've known people that have lost their jobs. And they struggled, well, what's going to happen to me? And if you're truly a saved Christian, what's going to happen to you? This is going to be tough now. God's going to take care of you. But it's scary when you're in that, isn't it? Uh, we have children, and we have to trust God with our children. It can be scary sometimes. You know, we have finances. We all have bills we got to pay. And sometimes, you know, it gets scary with the, with, with the way the, the economy is. You have house issues that you got to trust God with. You have family issues. You know, I've known, I've known people, young guys and gals, moms and dads who struggled all their life with losing their salvation. It's an aspect of trust. And, you know, it's the, uh, it's, the, it's the issues that we all have to face in life, and a lack of trust will always produce fear, and fear will always defeat you. That's why the Bible says, perfect love cast without fear. Your love's not perfect. And I don't mean perfect, I mean it isn't daily perfected in the sense of the Bible. You know, and right now, in the midst of this pandemic, this problem that we have, most people, I mean, and again, I've told you, you, you don't do foolish things. You've seen by what I'm doing in, in our own church how I'm trying to walk very carefully through this. And, but there's things that have to be done but you don't just throw caution to the wind. But I'm telling you, in the midst of this, most of people in America are just, I mean, uh, they're hiding under their beds. I mean, I'm all, for, I'm all for wearing masks if that's what you need to do, but I've seen people jogging wearing masks. Now, I just want to tell you something. You're going to die of a heart attack if you can't get enough air in your lungs. I've seen people driving their cars wearing a mask. Hey, if you go into some place where there's a lot of people, hey, I have no problem. I carry two masks in my, in my bag just in case I have to go someplace and it looks scary or someplace where they say you have to wear a mask. I'm not against it. But I'll tell you what, you don't have to wear one while you sleep. But you know what? God's people are afraid today. I call it, I call it a, even in Christianity, I call it a groundhog Christianity. You know, you come out and you see your shadow, you go back down in a hole for six months. And, you know, it's simply because during this time, uh, you know, we're, they're, 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 they're afflicted. They're going through some tough times, and they can't trust him to get them through it or get their family through it. And, you know, and I want to tell you, I, I don't want to, I'm not one of the, I'm going to tell you straight up doing everything that you do, doing everything that we do, trying to be as careful as we can. There's no guarantee that somebody isn't going to get it. I mean, I'm sorry. But you know what? I don't, I don't trust him for me not to get it, though I do. 
as much as I trust him, if I do get it, that he can use me with it. I mean, let me ask you a question. I mean, just a question in general. You know, I know it's not Groundhog Day, but let me just ask it anyhow. If as a child of God, I'm speaking to you guys now, as a child of God, as a Christian, if you're listening to this, and we've got, you know, four or 500 people that are checking these sermons out, and that's great. But let me ask you a question. And here's the bottom line. If you getting the virus would allow God to use you in a ministry way to somebody else's life, would you be okay with that? Uh, see, that's a, that's a hard question, but it's a very real question. Our first response is, no, but let me ask yourself, is God in charge or is he not? You know, years ago, years ago, you know, we all have the haunted houses that you go to in, uh, in Halloween time. Well, we don't go to them. It's too much money. They're like $50 to go through one. But, but the original haunted house, I'm telling you, this is the absolute truth. The original haunted house started back in Canton, Ohio, with our youth group, Mel Sabaka. We did the first haunted house when there was no such thing as a haunted house. We only ran it for, for one night. We, looking back, we should have ran it for a couple of nights, but it was first class. There was this old abandoned house that they let us set it up. You know, people weren't afraid of the lawsuits back then. And it was a thing where it was a big old house with two, three, four stories in it. And we worked on that thing for about four weeks before we opened. And I'm telling you, we had the manpower and the brain power. I mean, our Frankenstein room had the lady laying on it with the wavy hair like in the thing, and one of the guys had one of them Jacob Ladders things that shot up electricity up the... Th- it was first class. It was incredible. And we were working it, getting it ready. And we were working late one night, and it was dark in there, and there was a lot of stuff, and Barb, had st- she stepped on a nail and ran it up on her foot. And we took her shoe off, and it looked just, it was a puncture room, you know, and it was everything that, you know, just looked like it. We did everything you're supposed to do on it. But, you know, we went home. At 4 o'clock in the morning, she woke up in such pain, and her foot had swollen three sizes bigger than her foot. And so we t- took her to the hospital. She wound up spending five days in the hospital trying to get that under control. And, you know, people would look at that and you'd say, well, what, you know, what's the deal, man? I mean, here they were out there trying to do God's work, trying to do this, trying to do that, doing for a good thing. We actually had a lot of people came to church and someone got saved through the Hanukkah, we passed out tracts and all that stuff, you know. And people would ask the question, you know, why would that happen to somebody who's just trying to do it? Well, here again, you know what? She was in the hospital for five days and she won the girl in the bed next to her to the Lord. You see, sometimes God will use bad things in our lives to get the message to somebody else, and that's the only way that he can do it. Now, the question is, are we okay with that? I mean, how far do you take, how far do I take the concept of a living sacrifice? Really? I mean, how far do we take that? I mean, how far do I really believe and trust in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2? Do I just take the word living sacrifice for things that are comfortable for me? Or do I look at the whole thing? Now, nobody wants the virus. I certainly don't. And I'm not saying, you know, to be spiritual, you got to go out and kiss somebody who's got it. But what I am saying, not just with that, but with everything in life, is God in charge or is he not? And if he is, 
I'm not saying you do something stupid. But I am telling you that in the world that we live in, there's no guarantee that one or all of us isn't going to get it. You know, I think many times, is there anybody better in the Bible than Daniel, Ezekiel? You know, Daniel is likened to the Holy Spirit of God. He, 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 he's an incredible study in the Bible. And here's a man that when he went down to Babylon, he, he took his stand for God. And he took his stand in a way that put his life in danger several times. And, you know, and here's the deal. He, he, he did everything that God wanted him to do. He obviously was, if you read chapter 1, he had a great handle on God in the Bible. He had a great relationship with God to the point that God could use him. But the bottom line is, with all of that righteous stuff that he had, he still went into the captivity to the most godly nation the world has ever seen. See, we would think that because it was so godly, God would keep him from going down there. But he didn't. God allowed him to go down there because he knew that he had a job for him to do, and Daniel trusted God enough. He said, I, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's meat. He trusted him. And that's the real question. Can you trust him? Can I trust him? But you know what? For most of us, it's just all about us. It is. And we can talk it while it's all good. Boy, do we hear that. Well, yeah, yeah, it's coming, but yeah, we're, but when it actually hits, where are we? One of my favorite stories, and I've told it to you before, and you probably already know it, but don't get bored with it because I love to hear it and love to tell it. Back years ago, there was a man by the name of Manly Beasley. Some of you remember him, and Manly Beasley was a, was a great Christian. He had about four or five diseases that were supposed to be killing him, and he was a sick. When you saw him, he looked like he was dead six months in a casket. He was terribly pale, chalk white, but he never stopped preaching no matter what he went through. And I heard him preach one time, and he, he, he used this illustration. And boy, I've used it a thousand times because it's so true. He was speaking to a bunch of people, and it was kind of an informal thing, and he asked a question. He says, let me ask you a question. What do you get when you squeeze a lemon? And, of course, three or four hands went up, and they thought they had the answer, and somebody said, well, well, well lemon juice to make lemonade. And he kind of smiled, and he says, well, that's, that's not always true. And he told the story that he was from Atlanta, Georgia, and he says somebody was going into the grocery stores and secretly injecting a poison into the lemons. You know how they're all just separate there? And they were injecting poison in them. People were buying the lemons, going home and making lemonade and dying from it. And he told that story. And he said, you know what? You would think that when you squeeze a lemon, that lemon juice comes out. But what we now know that when you squeeze a lemon, what's really on the inside comes out. And then he says, what do you get when you squeeze a Christian? See, you think that you get the godly character of Christ when a Christian gets squeezed. But you know what he said? When you watch a Christian get squeezed, you know what? What's really on the inside comes out. That was one of the most profound things I have ever, ever, ever heard in my life that is so true. And when we get squeezed, what's really on the inside of us is what comes out.
trust. Trust the heart of her husband does safely trust in her. You know, do you know how I know that what I'm saying is absolutely true about us and all about us and our selfishness and not caring about the things of God? I'll tell you. In all my ministry, I've dealt with hundreds, oh, thousands of people. I've dealt with them from every angle, from every issue, from every problem. I mean almost 50 years of it. Of people who struggled in trusting God's promises one way or the other. And in all those years, in all those years, not one time did anybody ever come in to see me being upset because they were afraid that God couldn't trust them. It was always, well, I just can't trust God. See, it's all about us. It's all about us. Never one time did anybody ever come in and upset before they thought that God couldn't trust them. Now, you know the real question today? The real question today is a simple one. It's not, can you trust him? He's proved himself, but rather, can he trust us? That's the question. I mean, have we proved what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God in our lives? That living sacrifice concept? You see, now this is why people don't like my preaching. And I get it. You know, you got some guys you kind of say, yeah, yeah, he's okay. You know, I kind of, hey, that never happens with me. You either love me or you hate me. And I'm really good with that because I always like to know where we all stand. You either love me or hate me, and some people just love to hate me. But that's the way it goes in life. And I'm good with that. But you know what? In most preaching, I always wanted to do this. And from day one, I always, in my preaching, because I know preachers, and I know preachers can get an agenda outside of just preaching. And I always wanted my agenda to be that whenever I preach, no matter what I say, I leave you no place to hide. I leave me no place to hide. And this chapter we've all waited for, I mean, how many of you say, I can't wait for chapter 31, oh, chapter 31, oh, uh. this chapter will gut you like a fish. Because it defines what we really should be. Are we that living sacrifice? Are we willing to trust him through anything? Are we really? I mean, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says that that book discerns the thoughts and intents of its heart. And boy, when you open it up and you start to go in it, like I've said many, many times, the Bible is the only book in the world. When you begin to read it, brother, it begins to read you. We fail to trust him to work through any situation that will come up in our life. We just do. And today, I mean, um, stick your head out from under the bed for just a minute here. Uh, today, uh, he cannot trust us to finish the work he started, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and that he saved us for because we're too busy, afraid of everything in life and not having the ability to trust him. And God's people ought to be ashamed of themselves today. And the question today is a simple one. Can God trust you? Can he trust you? Get off the idea, can you trust him? The question is, can he trust you? Can he trust you with the things that he gives you? Can he trust you with the money that he provides for you, with the job that he's given to you, with the relationships that he's provided for you? Can he trust you with your family? Can he trust you with his ministry, with the Bible, or dealing uh, with, you know, the tough things in life when they come your way? 
And basically, can he trust you with the work that he has for us to do that he began in us the day we got saved? Can he trust you to be that living sacrifice to finish that work? Can he trust me? I mean, it's not a question of me trusting him. He, he, he's been there for me every time of my life. But I can think of a thousand times that I was not there for him. You know, people dream of women winning the lottery. And I got to gotta tell you, you know, I haven't heard much about the lottery in the last couple of months. I don't think they're doing it anymore, you know, because of the virus. But I'll tell you, that sucker was up. Can you imagine winning $800 million on a ticket? I mean, and I know Christians buy lottery tickets. I'm not fighting it. I, somebody says, well, I'll tell you what, it's a good. I've heard guys preach on preaching. Yeah, and if your people in your church bought one and won $800 million, you wouldn't complain if they tithed off of it, I guarantee you. But the truth is, you know what? You know the truth is about buying a lottery ticket when it pot, jackpots $800 million? Do you know what the real truth of it is? You never think about it. You know what the real truth? God could have you win it tomorrow. But you didn't win it, did you? You know why? Because you can't trust it with it. Now, don't get mad. I haven't won it either. You know what my dream is? My, my, I don't dream about winning a lottery because I think that's, I don't really think about things like that. I don't, I don't, I don't think about, but my daydream, my night dream, my dream is that, oh, here it comes. Somebody out there on YouTube is a multi-billionaire. And he, he tunes into our, our, our YouTube and he, he's saved, but he's never found anybody that really teaches the Bible. And here it is. And this guy is worth billions of dollars. So he calls me up and he says, I've never found anybody in the world that teaches the Bible as good as you do. He's a very perceptive man. <laughs> and he says, if I would fly into Kansas City in my jet once a month, would you allow my chauffeurs to come and pick you up and spend a day teaching me the Bible? We'll just stay in my plane. It's beautiful. We can have lunch, dinner, whatever you want. And just, just let me ask all kinds of questions about the Bible and just teach me the Bible. Would you be willing to do that? I'd say, absolutely. I'd say, at a heartbeat, I'd do that. I'd love to do that. And I'd just go teaching the Bible. I don't want anything from it. I just, just want to teach him the Bible. If he wants to learn and he's going to put out that effort, I'm going to do it. So here I am. His chauffeur picks me up, drives me a big old limousine, drives me out to KCI. He's parked down the end of the runway there, you know, and uh, meets me there, meets me. And he says, man, I am so glad to meet you. And I said, well, I'm glad to meet you too. He said, I've been following your website. I have so many questions. about." I said, well, come on, let's get to it. Let's, let's go up in the plane. Beautiful plane. I mean, really nice. And so we spend all day in the Bible. We do that for four or five months. And he comes in every month. And then he starts coming in twice a month. And he's calling me on the phone with Bible questions. I just let him have at it, man. I'm good with it. I'm, I'm having a good time. He's a good guy. Wants to learn. Boy, I love people like that. So, okay, after about the sixth or seventh month, I show up out there. And he, he, at the end, he says, look, he says, you don't know how much I appreciate you giving me the Bible. I says, hey. I said, I, that's what I do. You know what? I really appreciate you. I know you're a busy man. I know you've got all kinds of things. You're running around the world. But yet you take time to come in here for me to teach you the Bible. And I'm not going to do it. I said, I'd love to do it. And I said, I'm glad to do it. And he said, well, I want to do something for you. And I'd say, well, you don't have to. I said, I'm great, but I just, but he, I didn't do it. He said, I, I, it isn't about that. He says, here's what I want to do. 
I want to open up an account and I want to put in $100 million. And I want you to do it for ministry any way you want to do it. And when that $100 million runs out, there'll be another $100 million. And I want to fund everything in these last days. I want you to get to everybody what you're giving to me. Well, I'll tell you what. You know what I do? I'm going to tell you exactly what I do. First thing I do is go out here and buy about 1,000 acres someplace. And I'd put baseball fields on it, soccer fields on it. I put it, we go back to the old time where we made that in a ministry where we gave a Christian environment for, for sports to families. We'd put a big building on it. We'd do our volleyball. We would reach this city through athletics. I got the horses to do it. I got the people to do it. And we would, we would absolutely reach this place and just spend the rest of our life till Jesus come using every avenue. We would build a home for homeless people. I would build a place for, for, for kids. I'd do, we'd do everything we could. We got the people to staff it. You don't have jobs now. You know, we'd even, we, we, we'd all have a place to work and we'd just run the whole system and we'd do it all together. And we would spend the rest of, but you know what? He's probably not going to call. You know why? Because this is the hard confession for me, but obviously God can't trust me with that. God knows my heart. I'd open up a home for unwanted Jeeps. <laughs> it's the thing where I'm not holding my breath. Every time the phone goes off, I do not run over and pick it up. But you know what? We all have things like that that we think of. But you know what? God can't trust us. I mean, it's just that simple. And it's a thing to God, the two most precious things that he loves will be the Word of God and his work through the Word of God. And listen to me. He'll never trust us with it, the work or the Bible, till we first love that book and the work as much as he does. It's just that simple. We always approach the Bible from, a, from an academic standpoint or from what I can get out of it standpoint. I had a guy one time years ago, he asked me, he says, Bobby says, what is the key for me to really learn the Bible? I guess I just got to really study it because the Bible says to study that shows thyself approved. Is that what I need to do? And I said, well, you need to study it, but that's not the main ingredient. He says, oh, yeah, yeah. He says, I probably ought to really begin to read it, reading it, you know, reading it, letting it into my heart and into my mind. Is that what I need to do? I said, well, you need to read it, but that's not the most important thing. He went on with several things, you know, that he thought he had to do. And, he, and I just said, every one of those, I said, no, that's not, that's not it. And he said, well, Bob, what is the key? If it isn't reading, if it isn't studying it, if it isn't even putting it into your Bible, if it isn't going through and studying everything you can, what is the key to learning the Bible? And I said, the key to learning the Bible is loving it. If you don't love it more than anything else on this planet, you will never learn it. And you'll never learn to trust him because the two things that he loves above everything is his word and his work. And you and me to be part of that. And the Bible after salvation through that process will build virtue in you and that virtue you give to others who through ministry you help, you heal, you encourage and in a lot of cases you bring them back to life out of the darkness into the light. You know, all my years, you know, I've learned a few things. I, you know, I, I, I tried to be you know, observe around me, learn from around me, uh, people, places, situations, and things. And I, you know, I, I, I try to learn from everything and everybody. 
You know, and I see a lot of people, you know, that, that, that think they have a great Bible knowledge, and, and they know some things about the Bible. But there's no, there's no virtue in their life. There's no grace in their life. There's no work in their life. I have very little respect or even less time for somebody who is not involved in a local church, is not under the authority of some pastor, but wants to come in here on a Thursday night or a Sunday morning and say, look at me. Look what God gave me that he gave nobody else. Give me a break. I'm, I'm telling you, you know what, I, I am, that is so lame. You're, you're going to the wrong guy because I understand that that's not how God works. And just because you've got some knowledge about the Bible, but there's no virtue in your life that you're in ministry, changing somebody else's life, you're what? Just going around showing everybody how much you've learned and what you know? Let me tell you something. Those kind of wannabes have been in my world, and I just have absolutely no use for them. Proverbs 26, 4 is your, is your verse. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. You know what? I'm not looking for your Bible knowledge. I'm looking for the virtue that you have in you that because of what God has given you, you're willing to give to somebody else to help them. I'm not interested in what God showed you that he showed nobody else. Are you a, what, what circus did you come out of? I'm interested in virtue. You come through this whole chapter, you don't see anything about anybody's exuberant knowledge. It's virtue. The first thing that she had was virtue. And everything else that comes in her life came out of that virtue. I'm not interested in what you know about the Bible, what you don't know the Bible. Is there virtue in your life that you're willing to give what God has given you to somebody else? Or are you just flitting all over the place as the shining star in your own world being the legend in your own mind? Verse 11 says, the heart of her husband does safely trust in her. Now here's the next word is the word safely. You know, in the military and combat, when you are an elite group, an elite unit, you, you put your life in the hands of another man and that man puts his life in your hands. If you're in a two-man foxhole all night long and enemies all around you, you, neither one of you get to go to sleep at the same time. You run four-hour shifts or two-hour shifts. Somebody sleeps for two hours, but somebody watches, and then you, sh- you shift off. You know how easy it is for somebody who's in combat and tired to fall asleep, and both people in the hole fall asleep, and that is the last thing you want to do. You will not wake up, but your throat will be cut by morning, I guarantee you. So you've got to trust the guy next to you. You know, and we, we, we trust in, in Christ for his work in our lives. And we trust that God's going to give us what we want. But can he really trust in us that we're going to give him what he wants? You know, and if you ever want to study that, you'll find that there's three main men in the Bible that really, that really lay that out. One of them is Job. You know, I always looked at Job. Job trusted God and God trusted Job so much that when the devil himself came up, that it was God that brought Job's name up because he knew what Job was going to do. He got Abraham because somebody asked him about Abraham. He says, I know him. He'll do what's right with his family. He'll do what's right with his kids. God trusted him. How about Noah? For 120 years, he built an ark in a world telling people it was going to rain when he didn't know what rain was. And God trusted him. And I'm telling you, the key, the key to, to God having his trust with us is our heart and our trust 
And then can he safely trust us to do that? Then our next key word here is the word spoil. And it's profound and yet a simple concept. Our, our lack of trust in God's promises will produce a relationship where God can't trust us with the most precious things that he loves, the word of God and ministry. And when that happens, then we, in our life, in our lack of work for God, we spoil. We spoil the work of God. You live meat out too long and it spoils. You have a surprise birthday party for your wife or your husband and you tell everybody, it's a surprise, don't tell everybody. And then you tell me and then I said, okay. And then it's uh, this afternoon at four o'clock and I, your husband's walking out and I said, hey, Jim, I'll see you today at four. You know what I just did? I just spoiled your surprise. When you're shooting and you're a target shooter, you want to get your group as tight as you can. So you'll get five or six shots within a tight group, and usually you'll have one that shoots outside that. That's called a spoiler. Spoiled your group. And that's what happens. That's what happens when we as God's people are so selfish and it's all about us and our comfort level. We talk about loving God, but we always do it on our terms and we wind up spoiling the work. We claim that we trust him, but only when it doesn't threaten our little world and our little comfort zone and the work of God gets spoiled. Listen, we will either allow God to spoil us with his goodness and his blessings so abundantly you can't count them through the promises that we trust in, or we will not trust in those promises and we will spoil for him the very work that he desires us to do and needs us to do and saved us for. And remember, it's not about what time we went to work. Matthew chapter 20, the real question is, were we on the job? So now, so far we have 10 key words. We saw the woman. That pictures the false religions that will mess us up, take our strength. We saw strong drink, the world system. We were told to open our mouth, and that is with righteousness, to stick up for the little guy who can't stick up for himself, or to speak righteous judgment when you do help somebody. Then we looked at the beginning of the word that's going to define, not this woman in the chapter, but define us, because she is a picture of us. We found the word virtuous, the inner strength that you give to others the inner strength that you get by building your relationship and putting all those things that we've talked about that when God is ready, he can put you in any scenario, whether you have the virus or you don't, whether you stepped on a nail or you didn't, whether you got this or you get that, whether you, however it is, God can use you and you're comfortable with that. You're safe in his arms and you rest in that so he can rest in whatever he wants to do and feel safe with you doing what's right and not spoiling him. Rubies, rubies versus pearls. The heart, the heart attitude. Trust, being, uh, believing in him and him believing what you say about what you'll do for him. Safely, rest. Resting in the promises that you feel safe. And when you do that, then God feels safe trusting that you're going to take care of what he wants you to do. You know, my, my worst fear is the last one, spoil. You know, I, I don't, 
I don't worry about getting beat up for all the stupid things that I do in life because I deserve that. And I fully understand that that's just going to come down the road. What bothers me more in my relationship with Christ than anything else, and maybe this is what drives me to the intensity that it does, I don't know. I know I'm going to get beat up for a lot of dumb things, and that's okay. We're all going to do that. But the thing that I cannot stand, and I just will not, it, it scares me to death, is to have God want to use me in a situation, and I failed him. I was too busy doing something else to see what he wanted me to do. I, I, the fact of letting God down in that work is more terrible to me than anything else in my life because of the fact that, that I know how he depends. I, I know why he saved me. I know what he wants me to do. I know what he's given me to do. And the thought of not him not being able to trust me in that is, is sometimes more than I can bear. I always want to be there when he needs me. I always want to stand up for him when he can't stand up for himself. Somebody shoots their mouth off about his book, I want to be there to take his place and say it for him. I know I don't need to. He'll probably kill him in a week. I, I know I don't need to, but I think I need to simply because he's always stood up for me. I want to stand up for him. And I want to be there when he needs me to be there. Just like I want to be there for you when you need me to be there for you. Greater than that, I want to be there for him when he needs me to be there for him. And I never want to put my tail between my legs and not take my stand for him. Cowardice in the ministry is something that I just, I can't even tolerate. I can't even hardly say the concept of the word. We as God's people need to be strong. We need to stand and we need to, we need to speak for him when he can't speak for himself other than through the word of God. And I know he doesn't need that. But I need that. Because he's always been there for me and the thought of me not being there for him is more than I can fathom. Well, we'll hold up there. Each week we will define